Hello, I'm Daniel Morris, Senior Investment Strategist at BNP Investment Partners. Today we are joined by Richard Barwell, Senior Economist, Chi Lo, Senior Economist, Greater China, and Stephen Friedman, Senior Investment Strategist. We will be discussing growth and whether we think it will repair in the near future. Steve, why don't you begin and tell us briefly what's going on in the U.S. Thank you, Daniel. Well, let me start by just stressing how resilient the U.S. economy has been in recent years. It's generally sustained above-trend growth despite a number of challenges. And just to name just a few, uh, we had the European Banking and Sovereign Debt Crisis a number of years ago, uh, the taper tantrum in 2013, the effects of significant dollar appreciation that began in 2014, and more recently, uh, a, a cycle of negative uh, uh, corporate profit growth. I think there are a number of reasons why the U.S. economy has still been able to sustain at trend or above trend growth despite these shocks. First of all, I'd point to the fact that the monetary policy stance has remained uh, very easy, and policymakers have shown a willingness to adjust policy to respond to these types of shocks. Uh, second, consumer balance sheets uh, are quite healthy at this point, uh, given uh, the repair and deleveraging since the crisis, uh, but also aided by a strong job market and easier financial conditions that have boosted home prices and, and equity valuations. And third is the fact that uh, when push comes to the shove, the U.S. is still a relatively closed economy, allowing for a strong job growth uh, despite a weak global in- environment. Now, this being said, I do think that days of sustained 200,000-plus monthly jobs growth are likely behind us. Uh, This is because there's little remaining labor market slack. We are still in the midst of a corporate profit recession, and we are seeing a drift higher in unit labor costs, which could also restrain hiring. And at the end of the day, despite a more gradual approach, the Fed is still aiming to tighten policy. Now, all this being said, though, the job market should still be able to perform at a level that will allow the economy to eat through any remaining labor market slack over the next 6 to 12 months. And this actually bodes quite well for consumer spending, which looks like it's been on pace in Q2 of this year for one of its strongest quarters of the past decade. Uh, looking at more closely at inflation, here the news has been relatively positive, positive as well. If we look at the domestic side of the economy, uh, and I, I use as a proxy for that uh, service sector inflation, we do see that domestically we're generating inflation above 2% already. And the good news here is that this inflation is broadening out beyond just the housing sector. We're seeing it now in a range of other uh, services. And I have a little bit more confidence than in prior years that this uh, uptrick in inflation can be sustained because the U.S. is in a situation where its output gap can uh, that has persisted since the crisis is pretty close to being closed, and also the fact that there's very little remaining uh, slack in the labor market. So what does this all mean for the policy outlook? Well, I'll stress a few points. First of all, the committee is uh, quite uncertain about its estimates of, of a neutral policy rate. And in fact, when we look at their economic projections, we see that they've brought down their estimates for, for a neutral policy rate quite a bit in recent years. And this means that there's actually not that much uh, uh, rate increases that need to occur for the policy stance to get back to neutral. So this tells us that, there's, that the, the committee can be very gradual in raising rates uh, since it's not as far away from the neutral stance as it thought in prior years. Uh, at the same time, they, they are acutely aware of the fact that it's very difficult at this point to respond to any downside risks to the economy given that they're already very close to the zero lower interest rate bound and would have to pretty quickly resort back to QE. 
In addition, they're aware of downside risks to activity from abroad. And there are some late cycle dynamics here in the U.S. that suggest somewhat elevated recession risk. When I put this all together, it leads me to conclude that we're unlikely to get more than one rate increase uh, from the Fed this year. A September rate increase is certainly possible if recent data trends hold up. But again, still just one rate increase this year and perhaps uh, no more than two next year. Great. Thanks very much, Steve. Uh, now we'll turn to Chi Lo, Senior Economist of Greater China. Uh, thanks, Daniel. Um, well, the Chinese economy is in transition um, from moving away from um, investment-led growth towards service-based and consumption-led growth. Now, that process, this transition, is going to be a long, drawn-out process um, more than just a few years. So what we can distill from this kind of uh, environment is that, uh, well, within the, the, the transition, there will still be a cyclical movement of the, uh, the, the economic growth uh, cycles there. So what we can distill from this environment is that we are at this point of the cycle uh, looking at uh, a macro environment of low or probably lower interest rates uh, um, in China. And uh, the government's implicit guarantee policy is being modified so that blanket guarantee is gone for good. So we should be expecting some selective defaults coming out of China. Um, strategic sectors and sectors with systemic effects, for example, aerospace, defense, oil and gas, uh, public utilities, telecommunications, and so on, will continue to enjoy implicit guarantee under the, uh, the current policy. But economic-based sectors like construction, property, tourism, services, retail, will lose implicit guarantee over time. So that means risk differentiation in the Chinese corporate sector is becoming important uh, for avoiding defaults and managing credit risk exposure when investors uh, are, are considering their uh, investment strategies in the, in the Chinese market. Um, the result of the uh, supply-side reform, which China is now uh, trying to implement, is not going to be a sharp rise in unemployment, uh, but it's going to be more like deterioration in household income growth because the service sector has jobs that absorb the industrial layoffs are low-pay jobs. So we should be realistic in expecting China supply-side reform, uh, which will not be something, anything like what uh, Ronald Reagan did to the U.S. in the late 80s or Margaret Thatcher did in the U.K. Uh, this is a Chinese style, and we, we should expect slow-growth environment um, with um, um, uh, liquidity uh, being maintained to make sure that these structural uh, reform programs can be facilitated uh, going forward. I'll stop, here, I'll stop here for the China part. Thanks, Xi. Uh, now, to cover the UK, we have Richard Barwell. So, I think I'll say a couple of brief words on Europe first. So, for Europe, I think the key takeaways are Growth was good in the first quarter of 2016, but probably as good as it will get. Uh, the more important point is the level of GDP in Europe is still too low, barely surpassed the pre-crisis peak, still leaves behind a large margin of spare capacity. Within that, we want to look for good news. It's in consumption, which has been basically driven by disposable income, which has basically been driven by energy prices. But, of course, those energy prices have also helped tip headline consumer price inflation, into negative territory, uh, and it's only just climbed back. 
nominal wages look as, as weak as the prices that's being that reflects a lot of slack in the European labour market and the indexation clauses we find in Europe where wages today reflect where prices were yesterday. Underlying inflation looks pretty weak too on a range of measures produced by the ECB and others. Core inflation here at this moment in time is 0.9 and currently supported by rising import prices and that support will fade. And if all that wasn't enough, inflation expectations look very weak here. Continue to look, continues to decline through the months, posing a, a real incredible threat, I think, to uh, the price stability mandate of the ECB. What does that mean? It means the ECB can't stop. It has to keep going. Uh, has to keep buying bonds beyond March of next year. That's going to require further extensions in the program. And barring a, a miraculous reflation in, in the Eurozone, they could be buying for some time, some years to come. Uh, turning quickly to the UK, uh, the message here is obviously the, the entire direction of macro policy and the outlook is driven here by the, re the result of the referendum. We voted out, but it's not clear what we voted for. There are two real options on the table if Brexit does indeed mean Brexit. One is a deal much like the Norwegians currently have. That involves very little disruption to trade flows, but it does require the continued free movement of labour across borders. It does require continued fiscal contributions to the European budget. The migration issue is the one that probably tipped the balance to vote, vote for Brexit. It seems unlikely, at least at the current juncture, that the Prime Minister is going to be willing to tolerate a continuation of that. And this means that the default setting, at least for the moment, is for the economy to head to the hard-out scenario, which will be much more disruptive for trade in the medium term, much more disruptive for GDP, uh, much bigger economic consequences from that in order to regain control of the borders. Now, there are moments ahead in the months, even years ahead, where we could change course. We've, we've yet to even formally inform Europe that we plan to leave, even when we do as a two-year negotiation process to navigate our way through, there are plenty of points along that path where we could change our mind. But for the moment, for the moment at least, the insistence that free movement of labour must end is pointing us towards a hard-out scenario, which is, as I said, the most disruptive. In the meanwhile, that's not what's driving growth. What's driving growth, I think, is the uncertainty uh, about where the economy is headed. There's a lot of good research by the Bank of England and many good academics which suggests that uncertainty, when it increases, fear of the future causes consumption to fall, causes investment to fall. Uh, now, that's all well and good in theory and in simulation. We saw the first evidence that this is taking place as we speak from the market PMI data that were released uh, the back end of last week. These are surveys which collect evidence from a range of companies in the services and manufacturing sector and ask them how things are changing on the month. And in the first snapshot after Brexit, we had record drops in the composite measure of activity. We had record drops in the measure for new orders. And in the measure of future expectations in the service sector, we had a 10-point drop in expectations. Now, these things don't necessarily map one-to-one -one into GDP, but falls on this scale speak to this uncertainty effect kicking in and leave us at least on course for a recession in the second half of the year if these data are in any way, shape or form accurate about where the economy is headed. So if I now turn it back to uh, Steve. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'll just say a word about the Bank of Japan policy meeting later this week. Uh, 
And in, in a nutshell, we do believe that Japanese policymakers are likely to announce a coordinated and significant monetary and fiscal stimulus package in the near future, with the monetary policy leg of this package coming at this week's Bank of Japan meeting. We think then it will be accompanied in short order by clarity from the Abe government about its fiscal stimulus priorities. The net effects of this uh, apparent coordination uh, between the central bank and, and the government will be an implied helicopter drop. That is, fiscal policy will be funded by the central bank. And although we don't think that the central bank would commit to permanently expanding its balance sheet, we do think that investors and the public in Japan will be left with that impression. Now, the question is, uh, why, why might policymakers in Japan move in this direction, uh, uh, and particularly why the high degree of coordination between monetary and fiscal policy? Well, a key consideration here is that debt burdens in, in Japan, uh, particularly, uh, and by this I, I'm really referring to sovereign debt, uh, the debt burden is very, very high currently, which means that fiscal policy alone cannot succeed because higher spending now will just imply to the public that taxes have to go higher later, and that will weigh on household spending. And the way to get around this is through um, what will we'll look very much like a helicopter drop, uh, with the impression that if the central bank is financing fiscal stimulus, then taxes need not go higher uh, in the future. And, and another key consideration here is the fact that inflation and inflation expectations in Japan uh, still remain stubbornly low. So creating an, an atmosphere that looks very much like uh, a helicopter drop uh, can help uh, shock inflation expectations, even if the central bank does uh, try to maintain plausible deniability that this is, in fact, what they are doing. So our forecast, then, um, looking first at the monetary package, uh, we do expect at least a modest rate cut uh, from the central bank of 10 basis points, if not uh, more, which will take uh, the policy rate further into negative territory. We do expect an increase in the envelope of asset purchases, possibly by as much as 30 trillion yen, uh, across ETFs, REITs, and JGBs, and at least a reasonable fiscal package of at least 10 trillion yen and possibly as much as double that, uh, with a lot of the spending focused on some of the aims of abenomics, such as uh, child care vouchers, which would hopefully boost women's participation in the labor force and infrastructure uh, spending. But again, the key point that we would stress is that uh, we expect there to be an impression of a high level of coordination between monetary and fiscal authorities uh, which will create um, an impression for the Japanese public and for global investors that uh, Japan is indeed uh, engaging in a helicopter drop, a permanent uh, expansion of the central bank's balance sheet, uh, even if uh, the central bank does not indicate that that's what they are doing. Great. Thanks very much, Steve. Thank you also to Chi and Richard and to all our listeners today for joining us. We will speak to you soon on further podcasts. This podcast presentation includes a discussion on economic growth and is not intended as investment advice or an offer of products or services by BNP Paribas Investment Partners or any affiliate. Please keep in mind that the information and analysis in this presentation is only current as of the publication date.